As you know, we've been in 2 Corinthians, and uh, we've had some of our young preacher men uh, preach the last uh, couple of messages to bring us up to where we are today, the last few messages. But today we come to 2 Corinthians 10, and I want us to look at three verses. We'll begin in verse 3, 3, 4, and 5, and I just want to jump right into the, right into the passage. Let's, let's read. It says, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I'll tell you, church, I really struggled with this passage. I really struggled. Uh, began to study the passage, and it's not a complex passage. There is nothing here that's overly complicated. Uh, it was pretty easy to see what all of the different pieces of the passage were and, and what they meant. And, and I was able to take that and, and put together a little bit of an outline uh, but I was just wasn't comfortable with what I had, what I had written. I felt like somehow in this passage, the uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You know what I mean? I just felt like that while I had uh, seen and pretty easily, it's easy to understand the different components of this passage. I felt like there was just more here than I was missing. And so I went and read what a number of other Bible teachers have uh, said and written about this passage, uh, both modern Bible, contemporary Bible teachers, but also back through the centuries. And everybody agrees on the different components. I wasn't surprised by any of that. It is, as I said, a pretty clear and easy to understand passage. But I believe that there was just more. There is something. I am missing the forest for the trees. And so I continued just to read and pray and read and pray. And finally, uh, the Lord showed something to me that, that had been here all along, of course, what this passage is, even more than the particulars, even more than the components, as important as they are, and we're going to look at them, what Paul is teaching here is that there's a war going on. What Paul is doing here is he is sounding an alarm. He is telling us we must get in the fight. He's telling us that there is an enemy and there is danger and there is deception and that many people are falling for this, we are at war. As I was just reading on the periphery of this this week, I, I, I learned what a, what a phrase meant that I had heard before but didn't ever know uh, its, its meaning. I read about how U.S. Navy ships will call the sailors to general quarters. Do you know what that means? It sounded pretty innocuous to me. I thought maybe it meant bedtime, but it doesn't. That is the, that is the call to man the battle stations. If they give an order, general quarters, then every man goes ready for battle to his assigned location and they are ready to face the adversary. In fact, here's the language that's used when 
General Quarters is declared, is called on one of these Navy ships. They say over the PA system, General Quarters, General Quarters, all hands man your battle stations. The flow of traffic is up and forward on the starboard, down and aft on the port. Set the material condition zebra throughout the ship. This is not a drill. General quarters, general quarters. But they don't say that unless there's a crisis. They don't say that unless there's an adversary. They don't say that unless there's some existential danger for this ship. But when there is, when an enemy presents itself, they issue this command, general quarters. Well, what Paul is doing in this passage is he's saying to us, general quarters. We're at war. There's danger. There's much at risk. And we need to man the battle stations. Now, I don't want you to think I've gone too far, so let me reread the passage. We're going to read it three times today, but it's a short passage. Let's just look at it again. And you see if you can pick out the language, the military language that is calling us to war. It begins by saying, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Now, this isn't common language for the Apostle Paul. This is the first time this language has been used. And we're almost at the end of the book of 2 Corinthians, one of his longest books. He doesn't often say these kinds of things, but he begins by saying, we do not wage war against the flesh or according to the flesh, implying that we do wage war in another way. He goes on to say, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And so he says, we have weapons. We're in a war. We don't wage war according to the flesh, but we wage another kind of war. And we have some weapons in this war. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Now, demolition means what? to tear a building down, to destroy a structure. A stronghold would have been a place where the enemy could could be protected, where they could be uh, so uh, guarded in the middle of a battle that it would be very difficult to dislodge them. So the enemy is in a stronghold. They're in a tower. And we're fighting the enemy. We're fighting this entrenched enemy. And we have weapons and there's warfare. It goes on to say we demolish, there's that word again, we're tearing things down, we're at war. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. Now that phrase raised up against in the original points to a military action. You raise up against, you attack a city or a uh, military uh, unit, you raise up your weapons against them. And so these weapons of the enemy are raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are to take every thought captive. There's another war word. We're not just to argue. We're not just to ignore. We're to do what? We're to take these thoughts captive, prisoners of war, to obey Christ. Paul is calling us to general quarters. We face a great danger, we're under attack, we're besieged. 
Paul's tone is urgent. His plea is strong. And that's the main emphasis of the passage. There are a lot of parts to this passage. And like I said, we're going to talk about the parts. But the main emphasis here, we are at war. We are at war. Now, let's walk back through the passage a third time. And let's see if we can look at these details and see how they instruct us about the war that we're in. So first, you've got to know the context. What's Paul talking about? What's going on in Paul's ministry? Well, Paul is, well, he is fighting some opposition. And there were really three different forms of opposition uh, that were making life difficult for the Apostle Paul. One group was called the Judaizers, and these people were wanting to change the gospel to better fit their cultural views. Uh, the Judaizers, uh, they had grown up in a very Jewish culture and with the Jewish laws and the Jewish expectations and uh, the Jewish barbecue and everything that the Jews did or didn't do. They had this culture. It was their culture. And they were pressuring Paul to change the gospel to fit their culture. The Judaizers. That was opposition on one side. And then there were, there were those who were philosophers. Greek philosophers, Stoic philosophers. And they were pressuring Paul on a different side. And they were pressuring Paul, too, to change the gospel, to change it to fit their culture. There's always pressure on the church, the pillar and ground of the truth, the Bible calls us. There's always pressure for us to adopt the gospel, to adapt the gospel, to fit the culture of those around us. And so he had the Judaizers pushing him one direction. He had the philosophers pushing him in a different direction. And then in Corinth, he just had pagans. I don't know any other word uh, for those, but they were, they were pagans. They were involved in just uh, sexual debauchery of every imaginable kind. In fact, as I was Studying that this week, I found a reference uh, by Plato. You've heard of Plato, the Greek philosopher of the 4th century B.C. And he talked about these prostitutes. And they're really more than prostitutes. They were just, well, it's probably not fitting for our uh, family, uh, family worship hour here. But these people were... Uh, there were problems with these ladies. And you know, what the, you know what Plato called them in his writings in the Republic? Plato called them Corinthian girls. That's what this city was known for. And so those people uh, were pushing Paul to abandon any of the moral tenets uh, of, the, of the Christian faith. So Paul is being pressed on these three different sides. Having, having learned that, Let's look again at verse 3. He says, although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. We see there, we're at war. We have an active enemy. There's danger. There's this existential threat. We're at war. Look at verse 4. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
but they're powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments. So we have weapons, spiritual weapons. And our weapons, he says, are powerful and effective. Remember that, because we'll come back to that in a moment. He also tells us here that the enemy has built a stronghold. He is firmly rooted. The enemy is difficult to dislodge. The enemy is strong and entrenched. So there's this enemy. We'll see the identity of the enemy in a moment. But this enemy is not just passing through town. This enemy is in a stronghold. Stronghold. Then it shows us that our spiritual weapons, with our spiritual weapons, we can demolish the strongholds. That ought to encourage us. He says if you'll use the spiritual weapons instead of the physical weapons, the fleshly weapons, you will be able to demolish these strongholds. It's interesting uh, what some of the other Bible versions, what words they use to refer to this enemy, to what we are fighting. And so the CSB Bible that I preach from says it's arguments. It's arguments. It's this, it's this view. It's this perspective. It's this worldview. It's this philosophy. These are arguments that we're, that we're waging war with. The NASB calls them speculations. Uh, so not only are they arguments, but people are just speculating. What does it mean to speculate? It means just to sort of make something up that sounds good to you. And we're fighting against that. The NLT says it's human reasoning. It's just something that comes out of your head, makes sense to you, but that doesn't make it the truth. The YLT says reasonings. Uh, the Message Bible says philosophies. So you get the idea there are these lies these things that are not true that threaten us as Christians and as a church. And those, those lies have, well, they're firmly rooted in our culture. It's like a stronghold that's difficult to dislodge. Uh, but we have weapons, spiritual weapons, uh, that can demolish those strongholds. Look at verse 5. He says, And every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. Now that tells us just a little bit more about what, these, what this enemy is, these lies. They are lies that are raised up against the knowledge of God. So the knowledge of God stands, these are things that do not agree with the knowledge of God. They're different. They're in contrast. God's word says this, these things say something different. God's word is pretty plain about this, these things are pretty plain about something, something very different. And so they, these are thoughts, arguments, philosophies, speculations that are raised up against the knowledge of God. And then he gives us a command. We take every thought captive to obey, to obey Christ. Uh, so what should we do? We should take every thought captive. What does that mean? That means we should engage with every lie. We, we should defeat. We should render powerless. We're to take it as a prisoner. Every thought. Engage every thought. Challenge every thought. Don't allow the thought to take root in our lives. Notice it says we take every thought captive. And we need to recognize the danger of the lies. Now, let me put all these together because I want to make sure we're on the same page before we move forward. We, Paul teaches, 
We are in a war, a war of ideas, a war of thoughts, philosophies, arguments, and speculations. These are falsehoods. These are confusions. These are delusions. And they're very entrenched in our world. They're very entrenched in our culture. And unfortunately, they're very entrenched often in our lives. He tells us this is war. It's a life or death war, church. It's an eternal life and an eternal death war. See, if you believe a lie, if you believe one of these lies, it says something about our eternal destination. Serious business. And he tells us here there's danger in even allowing one of these lies to take root in our lives. That's when he says, take every thought captive. And he tells us that God has given us weapons to fight against these falsehoods and these confusions. General quarters has been sounded. Now the question, a couple of questions we need to answer. What is the weapon... What is the weapon that we're to use, and how do we fight with it? What is the weapon, and how do we fight with it? And so let me answer the first question. What is the weapon? If you look back at verse 4, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, that means it's not just some human speculation. It's not even a human argument. But they're powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. He says the weapon is not of the flesh, That means it's what? If it's not of us, it comes from God. So whatever this weapon is, it's something that God has given to us. And then he says here, you note, it says that the weapon is powerful. Powerful. Now, can you think of another time when Paul talks about a weapon and the power of that weapon? Well, I thought of Hebrews 4.12 And this isn't a a writing of Paul, but we'll get to one in a moment that is. But in Hebrews 4.12, the scripture says, For the word of God, the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword. So he's talking about a weapon, right? And he says the weapon, the word of God, this weapon that comes from God is powerful and effective, right? Right? It's sharp. It accomplishes its purpose. And then if we were to look to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6:17, when he's talking about the battle that we find ourselves in, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So here's the weapon. We're in a war. It's a war with thoughts, speculations, arguments. It's a deadly war. We're called to arms and we're given a spiritual weapon. And that spiritual weapon is the truth in God's word. That spiritual weapon, well, it's the scriptures breathed out by God. It's the scriptures that are reliable and trustworthy and accurate and true and relevant and sufficient. It's the word of God. This is the weapon. It's not some human uh, endeavor. It is the word of God that we can fight these lies, these lies. 
Now, the second question, what is the weapon? But the second question is, how, do, how then do we fight? Well, you notice there in verse 5 again, it says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So it says, we take every thought, every worldview, every philosophy, every idea, and we test it by the truth of Scripture. And so if somebody says, this is true, we should say, well, we shall see. If somebody says this philosophy is a philosophy of life, we should say, well, we shall see. If somebody has an argument, we should test that argument by the Word of God. If somebody says this feels right to me, and so it's right, we should say, well, let's see with the Word of God. This is the weapon, and we should test every thought, every argument, every speculation against the Word of God, the truth, the truth of God. We should remember that the Bible says we have an enemy that seeks to devour and to destroy us. 1 Peter 5.8, he says our adversary is like a roaring lion looking for the one he can devour. Uh, the Bible says that uh, our enemy is a liar and that his specialty is deception. So we must take every thought captive. We need to rec it, recognize it as an enemy. We need to disarm it, refute it, lock it away, and don't give it free reign to roam in our hearts and our minds. Now, I think to make this practical, I'm going to give you some simple one, two, three steps. But I thought perhaps what I should do is give you some examples of these worldviews, these arguments, these speculations that have taken such root in our culture, sometimes have taken root in churches, and maybe have taken a root in your life. So these are just examples. And by the way, I started with over 20 examples, and then I worked that down to a dozen, and then to six, and then this morning I got it down to five. So that's my Father's Day gift to you. <laughs> Let me share with you five lies. I mean, these are absolute lies, but they have, they have become entrenched in our culture. How are we going to fight them with the Word of God? So let me show you. Let me show you. Lie number one, there is no objective right and wrong. Now, if you want all of these scripture verses I'm about to share, uh, noeldeer.org slash resources, the whole sermon is up there. You can read it, and it's got the verses, because I'm about to use a lot of, a lot of verses. But the world says there is no objective right and wrong. You can't say this is right and this is wrong. Uh, it's hard to imagine that somehow we live in a world where there's no right and wrong. There are other ways that people say this. Sometimes people will say the same thing by saying, the most important thing to me is how I feel. That's the same thing. 
Uh, there's no right or wrong, there's just how I feel. Sometimes people will say, everyone should just follow their heart. What are you saying? There's no right or wrong, it's just your heart. Sometimes people will say, what is right for you and what is right for me are not the same things. What are they saying? There's no right and wrong. Sometimes people will say, we live at a different time, or this is a different situation. They're saying there's no right or wrong. If there were a right and wrong, then there wouldn't be a different time, and there can't be a different situation. So that's the, that is the stronghold that has rooted itself in our world, in our culture, in some churches, oftentimes in our lives. So how would, we, how would we fight against that? We take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we should fight against that because God has something to say about that. I'll just run through a few verses. I'm going to go through these quickly. 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God. That means God has breathed it out. It has come from God. All Scripture. How much Scripture? All Scripture is inspired, is breathed out by whom? By God. And it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. What does that say? That says that there is a right and a wrong, and it comes from God and has been revealed to us in the book. Scripture. There is a right and there is a wrong. And this book tells us which is which. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. It says you can come up with all kinds of ideas in your heart and mind, and you may feel really, really good about those. They may seem right to you, and maybe you're just a really smart fellow, but they could still be wrong. Because the source of truth is not what seems right to me. The source of truth is the Word of God. Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth. That's what the psalmist said. Your whole word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endures forever. That means this is the truth, and it's always been the truth, and it always will be the truth. See something very similar in Deuteronomy 32. Be careful to do everything I have commanded you. And do not add anything to it or take anything away from it. I remember one of the very first Bible classes I had in college uh, was called a sociological interpretation of, um, I think it was of 1 Peter. It was of, it, the point was, we were going to take a book of the Bible and we were going to change it so that it echoed the concerns of today's culture. You can't do that. You can't add to the Bible. You can't change it. It is the truth because there is a right and there is a wrong and it doesn't change. And then I love Jude 3. It says that we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is it. It's, it's delivered. It's written. The last page is there. And we must contend for this truth, not some other truth. There is an objective right and wrong, and it's found in the Bible. Now, I know that someone will say, 
while I reject the Bible. Now let's give that person a little bit of credit. That at least is an intellectually honest perspective. It's wrong, but it's honest. But here's, here's the stronghold of lies. It's not that some people say the Bible is all the way true and some people say it's a comic book. I mean, that's true. There are those two groups. But the lie is in the middle. The lie says that this page is true, but this page is a lie. And this page is true, but this page is outdated. But you can't say that. There is this comprehensive unity in the Bible. It's either all true or it is not true. And so unless you want to reject everything in the Bible, you can't say there's no right and wrong. So that's, that's an example. It's an example of a, of a lie that has found itself rooted in our culture, in some churches, and sometimes in our lives. Let me give you a second one. You can have faith without repentance. You can, you can be a Christian without any repentance. You can, you can be a child of God and there be no changes in your life. Here's some ways I hear people say this. My choices and my lifestyle will not matter in the end. I hear people say, I believe in my heart and that's all that counts. I hear people say, God forgives all of my sin, so I can choose to live however I choose to live. I hear people say, I believe in Jesus. What else is there? Or I hear people say, God just wants me to be sincere and true to myself. Well, those, listen church, are lies. They're well entrenched in our culture. They're well entrenched in many lives. But they are lives. Faith, a relationship with God, and repentance, a change in our lives, always go together. Let me read a few verses. Galatians 6, 7. Don't be deceived. Now, anytime you see that phrase in the Bible, don't be deceived, what it's telling you is, I'm about to communicate something that a lot of people are confused about. I mean, we wouldn't say, don't be deceived, it's Sunday. No, you know it's Sunday. You weren't going to be deceived about that. But if I said, don't be deceived, I'm the most beautiful guy in the church. Okay? So, see, I don't want you to get tricked. You're likely to get tricked. Now, when he says, don't be deceived, he's telling us this is something a lot of people get wrong. He says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will reap. You're not going to win one against the Lord. You're not, you're not going to outsmart him. You're not going to be the exception. You're not, going to, you're not going to pass on a technicality. God is not mocked. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Uh, really, it's eight and nine, seven, eight and nine. Uh, Paul goes through a whole list of sins, lifestyles. And he says at the end of that, or at the beginning of that, I should say, 
Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. There's that, there's that helpful reminder again. Don't be deceived. A lot of people are confused about this, but the people who are committed to these lifestyles, it's all kind of lifestyles. Those people will not inherit God's kingdom. The Bible says the same thing in Galatians 5.21. Revelation 2.16 says, repent. That means change. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Now, that's interesting because what he says is, we can fight with the sword against the falsehoods, or if we don't, God will fight with us with the sword. See, we either live by the book or we're judged by the book. Either the book is a treasure or the book is a curse. 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Not really much I can add to that. Luke 15, 7. There will be more joy in heaven. Listen to this. There will be more joy in heaven. Don't you think heaven's a pretty joyful place? So if this is a red-letter day in heaven, that's a big deal. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need repentance. Now what does that tell us? Repentance is valued by God. It matters. And so it is a lie straight from hell that we can have faith. We can have a relationship with God and no repentance in our lives. If you believe your spiritual history, your spiritual warm feelings, and your non-biblical spirituality without repentance will save you, don't be deceived. You've believed a lie. Well, number three, and these are just examples. I could give you a hundred, I think. Number three, God doesn't want you to do anything that is hard. We should just have an easy life. That's what God wants us to experience, our best life now. Here's some other ways that people say that. God just wants me to be happy. I'll talk to those that are struggling with staying in their marriage or not, and this is, the, this is the thing I hear most often. God just wants me to be happy. Uh, another way people say it is God just wants me to be true to myself, or God wouldn't want me to deny something that is within my heart. Uh, or to get super contemporary, you do you, okay? I always wanted to say that in a sermon. Those are lies. I'm not telling you to do that. Listen, listen to just a, I'll be brief here, but let me just give you one verse. One thing Jesus said. Matthew 6, 24. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross, follow me. Where in that verse does happiness fit? 
Okay, let me read the verse again. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. That means there, there are things in my heart that I need to deny. There are things that I want to do and I need to deny. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. That means to die. Your cross, that was a method of execution. And follow me. I'm not suggesting that God doesn't bring joy. The Bible says he does. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. God wants us to be happy. He says, uh, Jesus, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is the man who, and he gives a whole list of things. That word blessed, as uh, it uh, might be more accurately translated, would be happy. Happy is the man who does these things. God wants you to have peace. But God wants you to follow him. And following God is not the same as following your heart. No, following God means you deny your heart. Following God means you take up a cross. The pursuit is a pursuit of God that leads to happiness. It is not a pursuit of happiness that leads to God. If you pursue God, you're going to have some joy. You pursue happiness, you won't get God or happiness. Well, number four, God can't change you. I hear people say, in fact, I listened to a watched a video yesterday about uh, this whole controversial thing I'll hit in another sermon one day about whether or not we should encourage people to change and, and uh, some of the confusion around this. And, and, and listen, it's just a stronghold. It's just a lie. You can't change. And we'd be cruel to tell somebody to change. You can't change. Well, let me run through just a few verses. Psalm 5110 the apostle, not the apostle, the king, King David, prayed, God, create a clean heart within me. Now, why did he pray that? Because he needed it and because God could do it, right? God can change your heart. God's changed my heart on some things. He's cleaned up a lot of stuff in me. There's still a mess, <laughs> But boy, we've made a lot of progress. He's made a lot of progress. Don't believe that God can't change you. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this age. Don't just do what the world says do. Don't just follow your heart, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God's word and the Holy Spirit can even change how you think about things. I love Ezekiel 36. This is a verse you don't hear often, but listen. Uh, the prophet, God speaks through the prophet and says, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my commandments. Listen. There may not be anything in me that wants to follow the commands of God, but God says he will put a heart in me that will learn to follow and to love to follow. It's a promise. Now, it takes some time 
Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in me will, com- will carry it on to completion. So what's, Mark, what's uh, Paul saying? Part, Paul's saying that God started something, but it's not finished. Paul's saying, well, there's still a lot of messes in my life. But God is not finished forming the character of Christ in me. 1 Corinthians 6.11 uh, this is uh, following that whole list of sins. It says people guilty of these lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says, and some of you used to be those people. Now what does that mean? That means God changed them. God changed them. So it's a lie. God can't change you. And then finally, number five, the lie, the gospel brings shame. Another way people say that is they'll say, I hate criticism, I hate condemnation, shame, and the heavy-handed guilt from God, the church, and the Bible. I don't want to have anything to do with God. They're just trying to, he's just trying to make me feel bad. I don't want to go to church. They're just trying to make me feel bad. They're just trying to bring shame in my life. Well, listen then. When the word of God is rightly taught, it doesn't ever bring shame. It may uncover shame that's already there. But God, God's interest is not bringing shame. God's interest, the gospel, is about removing shame. Listen to what, what Jesus says in Matthew 11. He's talking to people that were filled with shame. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Come to me, all who are filled with shame because of your sin, with regrets. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Walk my way, he says, and learn from me. It's a learning process. Because I'm lowly and humble in heart. And with me, you will find rest for your souls. See, God doesn't want to bring shame. God wants to take our shame away. Hebrews 12, 2. It's an admonition. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And then it describes Jesus. It says, Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And he, for the joy that was set before him, so he was looking forward to eternity. Here's what he did. He endured the cross, hung up on the cross, didn't have to do that. Why did he do that? He was looking forward to eternity and bringing salvation to us. Hung on the cross for my sins. And he despised the shame. Jesus not only bore my guilt on the cross, but Jesus bore my shame on the cross. You know, they stripped his clothes from him. And I think that was just a, a picture of, um, of the shame that he bore. I've, I've done things for, for which I should be ashamed. And Jesus has died for my guilt taken it away and he has died for my shame 
He was shamed on that cross. My shame, he took it away. And then Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ, that means those who have recognized that their only hope is not the world, the philosophies, the arguments, the worldview, the speculations. It's not you and what's in you and you fixing your life and, and making something of yourself. No, we're guilty of sin and our only hope is Christ. And when we are in Christ, when we, when we say, I'm guilty of sin, but I trust that what Christ has done for me on the cross, I trust that that's enough, and I want to turn from these lies and this speculation, and I want to follow you. And the Bible says, for that person, there is no condemnation. Don't be ashamed, because Jesus has taken it away. Now, conclusion, way over on time. Uh, I'll pay you back next week and, um, or the next. I'll, I'm working on it. So those five lies, it's just a sampling. Like I said, I started with 20. So the Bible says we're to take those lies and the others and we are to take those thoughts captive. Captive. That's a, that's, it's a military thing, right? We're, 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 we're grabbing them. We're stopping them. We're disarming them. We're locking them away. It's violence. We're to take those thoughts captive. Let me tell you how to do that. One, two, and we're out. Number one, maybe it's one, two, three, but number one, invest your life in the study of God's Word. Today, most people are investing their lives in cable news and social media. It just depends on your age, which one it is. But I'm telling you, and uh, wait a week before you send me a letter on this, but I'm telling you, I don't think either one is less worse than the other. I am. I want to be the friendliest pastor you've ever known. I I really do. I struggle. uh, but I, I, I want to invest time. And, but I'll just be honest. If, uh, if you want to sit down with me and tell me blow by blow what happened on Fox News or MSNBC last night, I'm not interested. Okay. We have so many people investing their lives in cable news. And we have... So many young people investing their lives in these uh, TikTok videos. Now, old people think the young people are, are terrible. And the young people think the old people are terrible. You know who's right? Both of them, okay? We need to invest our lives in the study of God's Word. I'm not telling you you can't look at a TikTok video or... Um, uh, or uh, uh, watch a, uh, one of these uh, news media 24-hour talking head guys. Um, but I'm telling you, it's impossible to fight error without knowing the truth. Listen, 
you're going to fall for it every time. You're not that smart, and neither am I. The Bible teaches that Satan is a liar and that his specialty is a deception. It means he tricks us. And his strategy is the sneak attack. We need to invest our lives in the study of God's Word, or we will not fare well in this battle. Number two, we need to keep a covering of God's Word over us and over our families. Listen, the Bible, and, and I don't know that I really even saw this uh, until recently, the, the, the Bible over and over uh, establishes the role of Bible teacher. The Bible says God calls people to be Bible teachers or pastors. The Bible says that God gifts people uh, to teach the Bible. Some people can teach the Bible well. That's not because they're uh, any smarter than anybody else. It's just something that God has done in their life. The Bible also says that Bible teachers will be under stricter judgment. I don't like that verse, but the reason it's there is because Bible teaching is important. The Bible says that God puts Bible teachers in every faithful church. Now, why does God do that? We, everybody in this room, I'm sure, we can read, right? You can just read it. Why do we need Bible teachers? Well, because we need them. Because we must be under the covering of faithful and regular Bible teaching. Maybe you'll think I'm overstating my case. If we had more time, I could walk you through the whole biblical argument. But without the covering of a faithful and regular Bible teacher, you and your family will fall for the lies of Satan. We need somebody, we need multiple somebodies, but we at least need somebody who stands and preaches and teaches God's word that holds it as true and reliable and sufficient and accurate. Somebody for whom we don't get to pick what they preach, we need to be under that covering. We must be under that covering. So what does that mean for us? It means, first of all, that you and your family should just be faithful in worship and Bible study. You shouldn't miss. You shouldn't miss. You know, the studies say that, that if you go back 20 years, active in church meant that you attended four weeks a month, 48 weeks a year. That was active. You only missed four times a year. We go back about 10 years, and active in church was that you were here three weeks a month. And then, just before COVID, they measured it, and active in church, the way they defined that was that you would attend two weeks a month. And since COVID, they've done the same surveys, and now active in church is that you're here six times a year. Okay, so do you see a pattern? And people still call themselves active in church. I remember as a youth minister, I shouldn't tell stories when I'm over time, but I, as a youth minister, I'd go to all these ball games and, and uh, they would have, you know, the homecoming court or whatever. And this was, you know, a thousand years ago. I'm sure they don't do it like this now. But the, so the, the young lady would walk out in the football field and they're reading this little bio of her. And um, 
almost all of them mentioned the church that she attended. And I was youth pastor at the church that almost always got mentioned. And I didn't know hardly any of those girls. You know, we, we have this very soft definition of being active in church. And I know it sounds like I'm fussing because I'm the preacher and I want you to come. But what I'm, what I'm saying is that we're in a war. General quarters has been called by, by the Lord. And you and your family and my family, we are susceptible to these lies. And the only, one of the only hopes we have is that we find ourselves under the covering of Bible teaching. Now, I'll say something that'll get, get me in trouble, but it's been a little while, so. Um, uh, only the really spiritual people are still awake. And <laughs> so I have people tell me uh, every week, either by email or by letter, or I'm just out and about. Um, apparently there's something weird about my voice and people pick it out and know who I am. Uh, and so here's what I hear, usually multiple times a week, but there hasn't been a week in the last two years I haven't heard this here. Uh, pastor, I go to such and such a church, uh, but my pastor does not faithfully teach God's word. They'll say it different ways, but that's what they're saying. Uh, so I go to my church on Sunday morning, but during the week, I watch the services at First Baptist. So I'm talking to a ton of people. You know, the majority of the people in our congregation aren't even here on Sunday. They're TV and video. And uh, Pastor, uh, and they mean it as a thanks. You know, Pastor, I appreciate your church and your investment, the church's investment and Bible teaching in our community. Um, so here's what I want to say. I don't think I've ever said this before. Uh, it may upset some of our most faithful viewers, and it'll probably get me a phone call from a pastor or two, but uh, that'll probably be more fun than it should be. Um, but Paul is calling for general quarters. He says we're at war. Man your battle stations. If you are in a church where the pastor does not honor God's word as true and accurate and relevant and sufficient, and if he does not regularly and faithfully teach it, then you need to leave. Now, you don't have to come to this church. There are good churches in this community. Uh, go to Grace Bible Church. Go to Calvary Baptist Church. There are other churches that have a pastor who will stand and preach God's word. We don't have a corner on the truth here, but there are a whole bunch of churches here by the admission of the people who come and talk to me where the pastor does not hold God's word in high esteem and he does not preach God's word and you're telling me you're in a church like that and I'm telling you, you shouldn't be back next Sunday. Why? Because we're in a war. We're in a battle. Your family is in jeopardy. Your heart is in jeopardy. There are strongholds. 
And you need to be under the covering of the preaching of God's word. And it's just that important. There is a number three, but quickly. Just take every thought captive. Test everything you hear against God's word. Test what the Republicans say against God's word. Test what the Democrats say about God, uh, with God's word. Test what your teacher says, your professor says. Uh, test, uh, test what you hear on the news. Test everything. We must not let a single thought, worldview, philosophy, that is contradicted by the plain word of God, we must not let that find a place in our lives. May we take every thought captive. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, I, I, I just, I, I know we've been so long today. I, this is, Father, you've just rocked my world this week with this passage. Just the call to war. Lives are at stake. Eternal lives are at stake. The time being nice about this is past. Man the battle stations. I want to man the battle stations. I want to be on the front gun. Father, help us to take captive every thought that raises itself against the knowledge of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.